Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We've been airing a series of uh, interviews with mayors of cities where this program airs and finding out what it is the cities, the mayors, the councils have to deal with and what roadblocks and chicanes the pandemic has placed in their way. Don Iverson is the mayor of Edmonton, and he joins us on uh, the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much for being flexible with this. Uh, Apparently, I should not be trusted with time zones. Well, neither should I, but uh, I appreciate it, and uh, happy Mother's Day out there to uh, my mom, my wife, Sarah, and all the listeners out there uh, who are mothers uh, on this special day. That'll be very greatly appreciated. Mr. Mayor, what's the greatest challenge to you and your Edmonton Council? What's the greatest challenge you've faced and continue to face that is directly related to the pandemic? Well, I, I think the disruption to uh, all our lives is is something that's not unique to to local government leaders uh, or or even just government leaders, but certainly uh, in public service, um, you know, we are having to make some very extraordinary decisions about how to keep certain things running that must be kept running, and uh, then also what to shut down in order to keep people safe on the one hand and also control costs as um, as this whole thing washes over. Uh, the economy and 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 with it uh, the revenues that cities collect as a government, um, and and then you know absorbing all of that and trying to come up with coherent plans in light of the uncertainty. So we face that same uncertainty that households are facing and businesses are facing about how long this will last, under what circumstances behavior uh, restrictions will be uh, lifted, and and so you know dealing with that uncertainty, the same as every other Canadian and and pretty much person on earth right now is is part and parcel of what our city council has had to contend with with support from our staff the uh, common theme that i've heard from uh, mayors as we've uh, spoken to them to your uh, colleagues across the country is the property tax concerns with the municipalities keeping in mind the difficulties that individual property owners are facing and uh, for the city of edmonton as i understand it was some 1.5 billion dollars which is huge for any municipality plus you had to also deal with the utility fees fees reality uh, could you address that please well how much of an impact is the property tax issue having on on you and your council so so far the issue is is a cash flow issue because we've uh, worked closely with the government of alberta to harmonize the relief for utility rate payers both of their provincially regulated gas and electricity bills as well as their municipally delivered and regulated uh, water, wastewater, and garbage collection uh, utility bills. So we've allowed the deferral of all of those bills for 90 days uh, for those who uh, need relief. Um, and uh, we're looking at opportunities to, to provide further relief on, on delay of payment. Uh, and we've also um, worked with the government of Alberta to harmonize some relief, some extra relief for business taxpayers on the education property tax that comes from the province, which we collect on their behalf. But we've deferred collection, both of the monthly payments for the third of taxpayers who are on the monthly payment plan 
and uh, also given some relief because normally for people who pay, you know, the bill once a year around mid-year, we've said uh, we can push that off till August. Now, really, that's just a, a delay to give people time to, to regroup and make sure they're in a position to pay. As for programs to actually provide uh, relief in terms of uh, uh, a rebate on taxes or a reduction in taxes, you know, we've done our best to uh, reduce expenditures here at the city to lower the actual bills that are going out uh, uh, as much as we could. But um, but in terms of actual relief from the bill beyond a delay in when it's due, that would require uh, uh, support from senior order of the government with much deeper pockets. Remember, uh, we're operating for the most part with about eight cents of people's tax dollars and the province and feds have the other 92 and the ability to borrow uh, much more deeply than uh, than cities do. So deep, deep fiscal relief beyond these deferrals uh, uh, and delays in collection, that, that will still require uh, some additional extraordinary support from either provinces or from Ottawa or both. At the same time, the city has bills to pay itself. How understanding are your creditors? Uh, our, well, the city's got a double-A credit rating, and, and I would put uh, our balance sheet against uh, any other government's uh, both civic or municipal or federal, because uh, we the nature of our operations are such that we don't run operating deficits. And there's a bit of a debate in the accounting about what is and what isn't an operating deficit. But in terms of, uh, you know, you can, you can spend more in one year than you take in and either draw from a reserve or have a, a short-term payback plan. But that's very different than a structural deficit or a sort of uh, multi-year economic cycle um, uh, Keynesian kind of deficit that provinces and federal governments can run. So as a result, our balance sheets are in pretty good shape. We've got lots of assets. Um, you know, the city of Edmonton sold our telephone company 30 years ago, and we turned it into an endowment. So um, some governments would look at us and say, well, you should liquidate that endowment in a time like this. And yet that's sort of like starting to sell the farm to deal with the crisis. So cities are uh, look pretty good on paper, but we're pretty illiquid. Um, that said, you know, we're still credit worthy enough to, uh, you know, we've increased our short term borrowing capacity just to deal with these uh, oscillations in our cash flow within the same fiscal year. But really, the big issue that many of the mayors are looking at is as long as this drags on and revenues are down and costs are up, notwithstanding, in our case, uh, over 4000 layoffs to contain costs in areas where there's no activity uh, where facilities are closed, for example, Um, that structurally, if this goes on for long, too long, you'd actually have structural deficits for municipalities. And we'd then have really no choice but to further erode now essential services that so far we've tried not to cut uh, or start to cut back on infrastructure spending at precisely the time when you want those jobs and so we're we're right at the knife edge of, of being pushed into austerity mode just when that's the last thing the economy in our cities needs yeah uh, these are really really are difficult times and as you're as you're outlining them uh, I, you know i hear the same thing from other mayors and members of council they're facing the same challenges when mayor tory of toronto calls on the federal government to provide additional fiscal or financial assistance would you join him on that Hundred uh, percent. As a matter of fact, he and I were were on the, a number of the same calls. I worked closely with John and uh, with uh, twenty other mayors from Canada's largest cities 
uh, in the big city mayor's caucus of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. And so uh, the issues are most extreme in Canada's largest uh, cities because particularly of the dynamics around transit, which is about a $400 million a month extra cost exposure across Canada's large cities. And and the largest piece of that, of course, is Toronto, but proportionately you'd have the same issues in Calgary and in Halifax and, and for that matter, in in Red Deer and Victoria. Uh, So mid-sized cities uh, are all bleeding, but the biggest cities are bleeding the most. So we put together a proposal that uh, would support the needs of all municipalities. And uh, so John's worked very closely uh, with uh, with the other mayors on that and been a phenomenal advocate. Uh, he's a real gentleman to work with, actually. I have a lot of time for, for all the mayors, and I think we've we've grown closer together as a group because uh, we're all dealing with a lot of the same challenges. Yeah. Uh, the city, Edmonton, has done very well as far as numbers of COVID-19 cases are concerned. Uh, what about steps to reopen Edmonton? What do you think is wise? It's starting to happen across Canada, of course. What do you consider to be a wise approach? Well, I think a very, very measured approach that is driven by data. Um, I think uh, relying on the science and the advice of people who are best equipped to uh, interpret that data with the most relevant scientific knowledge has really uh, done us well uh, here in Canada, where public health officials have uh, have been listened to rather than second-guessed by, uh, by political leaders. And I, I think, you know, I hope that this is one of those moments where science wins um, and that then our, our reopening efforts are guided by that, which will not be fast enough for some and will uh, not be cautious enough for others. But I think if, uh, you know, we've done really well here in Edmonton by working very closely with uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw's advice, the Chief Medical Officer of Health for Alberta, and, and it also worked out well for us, I mean, per, uh, in a roundabout way, that as the numbers were rising in southern Alberta, the restrictions that were put in place that that were in response to things that have happened in other parts of the province really helped keep a lid on things here. Uh, and so that cautious approach and that data-driven approach has served us well uh, to this point, and I hope it's what will continue to guide uh, our response to date. We do need to start to open things back up, but we need to make sure that businesses that are opening up have good guidance about the the measures required to keep patrons and employees safe. And then there needs to be really clear guidance to uh, enforcement agencies, including organizations like the City of Edmonton, our police and bylaw enforcement, so that we know uh, what guidance and education we can give to people about compliance and then what enforcement is necessary to maintain public safety. And and the issue in Alberta uh, thus far has been that, that clear guidance uh, hasn't arrived yet, and with opening up on the 14th, we we really do need that prior to the 14th. So we're hearing from a lot of our our entrepreneurs, in fact, who are concerned okay. that they don't know enough to open up yet. So uh, so clarity that is driven by science, and then uh, measures to either reopen or constrain again as necessary need to really be driven by the best science. Mayor Iverson, thank you very much for the time. Appreciate talking to you. Have a good day. Well, thanks for reaching out. Mayor Don Iverson of Edmonton joining us on the Roy Green Show as we continue with our series of uh, City Mayors, where this program airs. How will Canada and how will Canadians emerge from this coronavirus pandemic? Ipsos Public Affairs President and CEO Daryl Bricker's new book is next. And the book is amazing. If you care about this country, if you care about where we are, and you 
have concerns about or hope for where we're going, you want to read next. You want to make it part of your library. should be in every school in this country because it provides answers to the very serious and multifaceted question, where are we going? And uh, next review is Canada's future from the perspectives of where to live, what to buy, and who is going to lead Canada's future. We had an opportunity to speak with Daryl Bricker about a month ago when the book first came out, and I've been looking for an opportunity again to do an extended period with him. And Daryl, thank you for taking the time. And uh, as we get to the point now where we're going to see a slow reopening of our country and people heading out the front door again and participating in life again, albeit carefully, the, uh, the general question first, has the pandemic accelerated what you write about in Next as far as the future direction for Canada overall is concerned? Well, I think it's highlighted a few things that we didn't really realize about our country. So, for example, um, one of the things that I really uh, point out in Next is that uh, the most common household in Canada today, so if you look household composition, composition is actually people living on their own. Uh, so when you think about what we're going through here, yes, there's a lot of parents struggling with kids at home. There's a, a lot of senior couples that are dealing with this situation. There's, a, you know, uh, extended families living together. But the most common type of situation is actually people living on their own. And if you think about what a struggle it must have been for them through this period, that's the new Canada. That's that's the, the situation we're actually dealing with. And when I tell people, you know, that the most common household in Canada today is people living on their own, they sort of look at me in disbelief, and then they start thinking through all their friends and other people that they know. Yeah. And they pretty com- quickly come to the conclusion, yeah, well, maybe that's right. It is. Uh, at first you say, well, yeah, I mean, is that possible? And then, you know, I think of my situation. I certainly live alone, and I have a, a lot of friends who live alone, and they've gotten to that part in their lives. And what's interesting as well is they're quite comfortable with it. Yeah, and especially uh, older women are quite comfortable with it. Older men, not so much. So when, when men either go through uh, widowhood or they uh, they go through some sort of a, uh, a relationship breakdown, they tend to get are much more likely to get remarried than women. Women, in some ways, uh, I don't want to put, uh, you know, make it uh, a joke out of it, but it seems to be true in the data, seem to be actually quite content to be on their own, and they're sort of happy to be past that stage of their life. And so one of the things I point out in the book is that there's a group of the population that's rapidly growing, is really important in the Canadian population, uh, and is just going to be a bigger and bigger part of who we are going forward, is women over the age of 50 who are by themselves. They have a lot of money. They tend to be very integrated into their communities. Uh, You know, these are people who are voters. They're volunteers. They're people who are working part-time or full-time all over the country, and nobody pays attention to them. When was the last political campaign you saw that was targeted at women over the age of 50 who are living on their own? Or any consumer advertising, or any restaurant who caters to that particular uh, group of the population? And the answer is just about nobody. So these are the kinds of things when you you know, you know go through a crisis like COVID and you look at some of the, the, the demography and you see what's actually going on in the country, you realize how we're changing. Yeah, I, I got into a bit of an argument with a marketer not long ago, and uh, they were talking about the uh, you know the lack of interest they have in anybody who's over the age of fifty-five. And I said, well, that's because you wear short pants. If you had, and that's where really that's where the conversation ended because he took it as an insult, and maybe it was. Um, but I just thought I was being a realist. And the, when you look at people over the age of 50 or over 55, I think that's where a large part of the disposable income in this country exists. 
But there, there's so much in your book that, that we that we need to talk about, about who we are, where we live, who we'll be. And what I find fascinating, and I want to just have another look at this, and it really comes under Chapter 2, Late Bloomers, why business is blind to the obvious. What's going on, Daryl? Why are they blind to the obvious? Because they have this image that was created of who Canada's, Canada is, and, and particularly who Canadians are, that was created as a result of the baby boom after the Second World War. So everything was about uh, uh, you know, uh, large families, lots of biological kids, like uh, biologically related kids, uh, and uh, this youth movement that was driving everything in the, in the marketplace. And they still think that that's the case. And the answer is no, it's not. I mean, the birth rate today of Canada is about 1.5. That means the average woman in her lifetime in Canada has 1.5 kids. Uh, to have a replacing population, you need to have a, a birth rate of at least 2.1. We're more than half a kid short. So without a combination of immigration and the fact that people are living longer, the Canadian population would actually be shrinking today. Uh, back in 1960, when a lot of people sort of looked to what our country, our, our population is supposed to be, the average birth rate was four. We've changed incredibly, and in, people have clocked it. In 70 years, we've gone from four, an average of four children, to one point? Yeah, in, in 60, actually. In 60 years. Well, my math's never been years. any good. Just, just about half a, half, a, half a century. It's, the birth rates have collapsed. And, you know, I say it about Canada, but then I go around and I say just about every country in the world, yeah. actually every country in the world has gone through a birth rate decline except for one, and that's Israel. But even China, the birth rate, they tell us, is 1.5. It's probably lower. The birth rate in places like uh, Spain, uh, Italy, 1.2, 1.3. Those are populations that are now in the, in, the, in the position of shrinking. Without massive immigration in Canada, we would be shrinking too. In part two of your book, Where We Live, The Great White Myth, Why We Are Handcuffed to Our Past and Missing Our Future, and then in the next chapter, What Our Future Really Is, you write How the East Was Lost, Why Western Canada Is Our Future. Can you speak to that, please? Yeah, well, sure. On the uh, the great white myth, it's we have this uh, uh, you know continuing view of Canada that is that we're this uh, you know great white north. I mean, so if you you know go take a look at say for example tourism commercials or whatever, I mean they feature the Rocky Mountains and you know the Northern Lights and all of these things that are out in the in, in the north. And while we have a great respect for the north, we don't live there. In fact, fewer and fewer people as a percentage of our population, live in rural and small-town Canada every year. Uh, and we certainly don't live in the north. Uh, almost all of us, over 90% of us, live within 100 kilometers of the U.S. border, and 40% of us live in just four places. Uh, and, uh, so, and those numbers keep getting bigger and bigger. Uh, so uh, this idea that we're these, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, northern uh, um, you know, people who are out there, you know, Wrestling with uh, with polar bears and uh, and living in igloos and uh, it's and, romantic, know, car- carving our future out of the out of the tundra uh, couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> I wonder how many Canadians could recognize tundra if they were sleeping on it. Well, that's yours truly included. That's what I ask in the book. I said you don't have to go all revenant, but you know when was the last time you ever confronted nature and were worried about your life? And I don't mean like just you know on a slippery yeah. road driving from between Hamilton and Toronto, but you know you were really worried in nature. And the answer right. is probably not, and probably never, probably never. And so, I actually do this uh, analogy in the book where I say, you know, if you want to understand this myth about the past, 
go to a Toronto Maple Leafs hockey game and then go to a Toronto Raptors game and go take a look at the two audiences. One is the future, one is the past. Very interesting. Very interesting. Look at soccer, how soccer has grown in, exactly. uh, in, in the last generation. Uh, it's cricket. now massive cricket. Exactly. But why is what makes Western Canada? Because, you, you know, there's a lot, so much emotion in the West. Every program that I do, I can guarantee you, I'm going to hear from people in Western Canada who are going to tell me, here's another reason why we don't want to be part of Canada anymore, or we at least want to have a referendum on whether we want to, whether, you know, by majority, we decide to stay in Canada. So to for everyone in this country, including the people who question the relevance of our continuing as a large family, why is Western Canada our future? Well, Western Canada is our future because that's where our population is growing, and it's the youngest part of the population. So if you look at what's happened since 1960, there's been a massive shift of people from Eastern and Central Canada in terms of weight to the suburbs of Toronto and Western Canada. So if you look at the most rapidly growing places, even going through what we're going through with the oil and gas industry right now, they continue to be places, the fastest growing city in the country, Calgary, Alberta. Um, and the reason for that is not so much because of domestic migration, people going to work in the oil and gas industry, but still uh, people immigrating from other places coming to, uh, to Western Canada. And the reason for that is because you tend to go where there are people who are similar to you. And most of our recent immigration has been from Pacific countries, particularly India, the Philippines, and, and China. And an awful lot of the more recent people from those places are settling in Western Canada, and people from those places continue to go there. The, uh, the, the growth of the West then, uh, and, and we, if we take that and we couple it with what you said a little earlier about the fact that 90% of us live within 100 kilometers of the U.S. border, and we've become an urbanized community, an urbanized nation, uh, ever more so. I think 82% of us, you would know better than I, but I think 82% of us in, in Canada live in, in urban environments. Is that the number? Okay. So, but, but you also write the suburbia will beat our downtown every time. And, uh, and you also, you have another chapter here, the big smokescreen, Daryl, why the urban suburban divide will continue to grow. Are we, for example, talking 416-905? Yeah, we are talking 416-905. And, uh, the, the, uh, the interesting thing about, uh, downtown. So, for example, like downtown Toronto, uh, affluent people, uh, tend to not have kids, um, and they are also tend to be disproportionately white, better educated. That's who lives downtown. So we've got this idea that, uh, you know, the greater Toronto area is, is mostly about the Toronto, you know, the multicultural Toronto. Well, Toronto's, you know, somewhat multicultural, but certainly not as multicultural as the suburbs are. And if you look at the rate of growth in the suburbs around the city of Toronto compared to downtown, it's doubles and triples. In, in communities around the city of Toronto as opposed to downtown. And the problem is that those two groups of people have very different agendas. Uh, the, the downtown folks want to, you know, increase bike lanes. They want to, uh, uh, you know, create more of an enclave in the city of Toronto for a very particular, uh, uh, I would say, combination political point of view, but lifestyle. Whereas the people in the suburbs who are coming into work have a different life altogether. And what the people downtown are doing is make it, making it harder and harder for those people who are on the outskirts to find their way downtown, which is going to create big, big political cleavages. And we actually saw that in the provincial election last time around in the province of Ontario, which was really the revenge of the commuters. Yeah. Uh, if I can go back to something you said at the beginning of our segment, and that is the issue of immigration and uh 
You have a chapter in the book, The Battle for Immigrants, Why Our Biggest Challenge is Our Biggest Strength. So we, we have that. And then if I go to your next uh, part of the book, uh, part four, what's next? You write about the silver tsunami, why a new wave of older Canadians matters most. How do we put the two together, the immigration and then the older wave of Canadians? Well, the older wave of immigration, or the older wave of Canadians is going to need the immigration immigrant population because by the time we get to the twenty, the mid twenty thirties, there's only going to be about two Canadians working for every Canadian who's retired. That's if we don't change the way that we uh, that, that we uh, uh, that people do retire from work. Uh, and so the truth is, we need a younger population coming into the country, and if they're not being born here, you've got to get them from somewhere. And, and, you know, Roy, people think that there's this massive number of immigrants out there. There, there is. It's about, uh, about a quarter billion people. But the truth is only about 3% of the world's population doesn't live in the country in which it was born. So there's going to be a competition among all of these countries uh, in the world that are going through the same thing that Canada is going through, some of them more rapidly and more advanced in this regard, and in which we're going to be looking particularly for skilled immigrants to come in and support our economies. I mean, the other option is you turn into a place like Japan where they're going to have to try and replace the productivity with robots because they don't have any kids. Their median age is in the late 40s, uh, and they don't welcome immigrants, and they're running out of workers. Hmm. Uh, We have about a minute left, Daryl. Who's going to lead this new Canada? I actually think it's going to be people who are enlightened uh, uh, baby boomers, particularly the tail end of the baby boomers. So I'm really looking. I think the new power segment of the of the population is going to be women over the age of fifty. This is really fascinating. Uh, your, your book is uh, absolutely. I mean, I've I've read so many parts of it over and over because I want to make sure that I can absorb it, and then I get on to the next part of it, and it's so it really is a fascinating read if you care about Canada and care about where we're going. Do we understand what's happening by, by majority? Do we know this metamorphosis that's taking place? No. In fact, uh, what I'm telling you right now, I, I, I'll walk in front of a business audience or i walk in front of you know, uh, people who are supposed to know better and you know, start talking about this, and jaws are hitting tables all over the room, which is why I wrote the book, because we really don't know ourselves anymore. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, if I just look at the numbers that you talked about, and that's the numbers of, of children being born in, in Canada to families. Four kids, 1960? Yep. One point, what is it? 1. 1.6? 1. 1.5. 1.5. going up. <laughs> that is a huge drop with the implications are massive. The millennial birth rate in the United States, I haven't seen it for Canada yet because I haven't seen it published anywhere. Millennial birth rate in the United States is mo- among millennial women is one. Well, Daryl, thank you for the book, really, sincerely. Oh, you're too kind. You're too no, kind. no. I really appreciate it, Roy. It's amazing. It is just something that every Canadian should be reading and absorbing and learning. Thanks, Daryl. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Daryl Bricker is president, CEO of uh, Ipsos Public Affairs, and the book is called Next. You can order it online, of course, uh, Amazon and elsewhere. Brian Peckford is the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. He knows about running a province. He knows about interacting with the Trudeau. In his case, it was Pierre Trudeau, and uh, Justin Trudeau's father was Prime Minister of Canada. And uh, Premier Peckford rejoins us on the Roy Green Show. It's been a while since we've talked to the to the Premier. Peckford42.wordpress.com is his blog, Peckford42.wordpress.com. Premier Peckford, good to talk to you. How are you? Hi, how are you? Happy Mother's Day. 
Happy Mother's Day, indeed, to all the mums in this country. And I, exactly. I, you know, I, I tweeted earlier today that nothing tastes better than dry toast and a completely rock-solid egg that's delivered by a, by a beaming six-year-old. <laughs> when well, you can. Okay. When you can. Uh, yeah. So many cases where you just can't have the physical uh, contact with mom and give her a hug this year. We'll be talking about this uh, Mother's Day for many years to come. What about uh, Mr. Trudeau and uh, and the things he's doing as, as a former premier who worked, um, I wouldn't say with his father, although you had to at times, you certainly challenged Pierre Trudeau. Uh, is he doing everything that's necessary and doing the things that are necessary in a manner that he should be? Or is there some validity to my challenge that he's doing it in dribs and drabs and uh, should be doing making bigger announcements? Premier, I almost get the sense that I shouldn't say I almost get the sense. I've said it, that I believe Mr. Trudeau is at least partly engaged in rebuilding or an attempt to rebuild his his image and his party's image while he has a captive audience. I don't think there's any question about that. And this thing is well staged. I mean, he should go back to drama school and to the to where he was teaching because this is what this is all about. When I see him on there in the mornings and I, I look at it, I mean, it's, it's just like a, a you know an elementary or a high school uh, drama class, and he's 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 uh, teaching them how he should speak uh, on this subject or that subject. Uh, it's it's very distasteful to me, uh, and so. Uh, but he, but he has the floor right now because of this pandemic, and uh, his government has the floor, and uh, they're now busily uh, dishing out billions and billions of dollars all over the place uh, to everybody. So of course uh, his uh, his numbers in the polls are going to look high, and the government is going to look good until the day comes, the day of reckoning will soon come, when we'll find out just how much of this was really needed and whether it was targeted properly and so on. I mean, you know, in two months to spend the $200 billion in Canada, a country of our size, is quite historic and, and uh, something that needs great analysis. Yes, it does. And there will be a need for detailed review. But when it comes to what he's doing now, I also look at the other political parties and I ask myself, would any of the others be doing anything differently or would they also see and seize opportunity? And the answer is they'd probably do the same thing. Yeah, I think I, I think in the, in today's uh, Canadian political world where leadership is is abysmally lacking that the uh, the response quickly will be more money uh, because to stand up and say we're going to do this in a targeted way and to do this but not do that uh, would not uh, is, is not on for most of the leadership of the country right now unfortunately and as it relates to the greens and the NDP well they just want to spend more anyway that's that's their modus operandi overall Mm-hmm. And uh, the Conservatives are in the middle of a, a leadership race, which looks like is going nowhere. So it's a shambles. There is a, you know, the, the Prime Minister and, and his party have, have the floor uh, completely to themselves. And uh, given their poor leadership in their first go around, uh, their answer has been, uh, you know, the, they had promised that they were going to balance the budget and ended up with tens of billions of dollars in deficit each year and broke that promise, and now they're continuing uh, with it now, where money has to be spent. The question is, uh, shouldn't we uh, be a more targeted 
policy rather than this just everybody gets everything. Now, dribs and drabs, announce what you're going to do and create some confidence, particularly in the small business sector, which we've been talking about a lot on this program with Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, because they are, again, the number one employers in this country. So make the announcements, make them concise, let people know what you're going to do, and then they'll they'll decide that you're doing a good job. You don't have to say, I want all the mums to leave the room so I can talk to the kids. It's just it's childish, uh, that part of it. Anyway, uh, we have about a minute and a half. Premier, you, you sent me an email about two bad P words. The floor is yours. Yes. Yes, I had. I was absolutely, uh, you know, astounded and and, um, and and humored by the fact that here in Canada right now, uh, we uh, we had two words, private and plastic, which were bad, bad words. And I noticed uh, this past week that the government of British Columbia is no longer talking about private health care as being bad, bad. They're going to employ all of the private clinics they can get their hands on to help them get rid of the backlog of surgeries that they got because of the lockdown. So suddenly private health care, which was a no-no out here, and they're trying to outlaw everybody who was into private health care, as well as the Canada Health Act trying to do it as well, uh, now suddenly private is a wonderful world. And then, then I get on my bike two days ago and I drive to a nearby supermarket, and there's this big sign up outside the door saying, don't bring along your bags. Don't bring along your paper or your cloth bags. We are going to give you free plastic bags, which they had outlawed only, you know, some of them only a few months ago, some of them a year or two ago. And I remember going into that supermarket, and when I said something about, well, you know, I'd like to have plastic, please, because it uses less energy than the other bags, I would get uh, looked upon as if I was, a person, you know, some kind of person from the Middle Ages. So it's really interesting to see how two words which were so negative in the minds of Canadians have suddenly become the panacea to our problem as it relates to health care and to our problem as it relates to carrying groceries. Private and plastic and Peckford. <laughs> the three P's. <laughs> the three P's. The triple P's. The triple P's. We've got a band forming here. Premier, thank you for the time. Good talking to you again. Good talking to you, too. Have a great day. You, too. Peckford42.wordpress.com is the blog. When we come back, we're going to talk about the finances of Canadians in a 10-point jump since December. 10-point jump since December. Almost half of Canadians are concerned about their debt. This is according to an MNP Canada Consumer Debt Index. We'll talk to the Senior Vice President of Consumer Insolvency at MNP LLP. Last October, we spoke with uh, the uh, CEO of uh, MNP about a poll that they had done by Ipsos. And, uh, boy, the numbers were disturbing. 48% of people in this country, and this is last October, 48% said they were $200 or less away from not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. That was before the pandemic. 
So what's the situation like now for Canadian households? How are Canadians feeling about their finances? What's the reality? John Athanasio is the Senior Vice President of Consumer Insolvency for MNP, and uh, he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. John, thank you so much for the time. With 48% of Canadians last October saying they were within 200 bucks of not being able to pay their bills at the uh, at the end of the month, you have some new numbers. What's it look like today? Well, hi, Roy. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so the uh, Consumer Debt Index is something that we run quarterly. It's a quarterly survey that conducted by Ipsos on behalf of MNP Limited. And uh, with that survey, we measure Canadians' attitudes towards debt as well as uh, it gauges their ability to pay bills, absorb interest rate fluctuations, and endure unexpected expenses. So uh, we started the index in 2017, and uh, we kind of monitored everything uh, based on that benchmark of 2017. So we just released one in March, and that was kind of at the kickoff of the pandemic. So surprisingly enough, it's, it's fairly, it's just a little bit higher than it was in October, we're at 49%. However, we did see a drastic drop uh, with respect to the index since December. So in December, it was kind of looking a little upbeat where people were on the high end of the uh, index. And now suddenly we've seen a 10-point drop uh, in March. So if you, if you see a 10-point drop between December and March, a well, three-month period, four-month period, that is um, a first, is it not? It is. We haven't seen such a drop since we started the index. And uh, in March, it was actually the lowest point it's been since we started this uh, survey in 2017. Okay, and I see here, I don't know how to interpret this, John. The MNP Consumer Index currently sits at 93 points, minus 3 points in brackets. Uh, What does that mean uh, in in layman's terminology? So the index is more or less, uh, it's a benchmark. So we started taking the survey... We use the 2017 initial survey as our benchmark with respect to the attitudes of Canadians with respect to their spending and uh, ability to make payments and whatnot. Right. So when we conduct a survey every month, we measure the people's attitudes, and we kind of relate it back to that initial benchmark that we established in 2017. Okay. okay. So right now, what? we're at the lowest point we've seen uh, with respect to how we measure uh, the attitudes of Canadians since we've started that index. So wow. it is it is a little... Uh, troubling to say the least yeah whenever i see a minus sign i get i pay attention i also see in the uh, the in your most recent consumer debt index uh 25 of canadians say they are already unable to meet all their debt obligations every month and then that's there's that 49 percent teetering on the brink of insolvency and that takes us back to the 200 dollars or less away from not being able to pay all their bills right. at the end of the month so that's, that's a problem for the families. It's also a problem for the creditors. It's also a problem for the entire business cycle, because if the money isn't there, how are you going to start to move product when the economy reopens? Yeah, so now we're faced with this pandemic. So I'm curious to see what the results will be like in June. So we conducted in March, and now we'll see after we've at least, well, by June we'll have two good months of the COVID under our belt. So we'll see how that number changes. I'm guessing we're going to see a pretty pretty big drop there in, in consumer confidence so time will tell yeah john do regions come into play or are the numbers consistent across the country it's been pretty consistent uh, we can say alberta's you know been one of our uh, provinces that has been hit pretty hard uh, even before the pandemic and now with the drop in oil prices you know they're they're getting hit twice as hard so uh, right now it's kind of been steady with 
possibly Alberta, kind of the outlier in the group. What about bankruptcy numbers themselves? How are they uh, across Canada? How are you finding that at an MNP? Well, it's kind of interesting right now. Like, so since this pandemic hit, uh, we've seen actual actual filing numbers drop. Now, the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy releases filing statistics every month. There's usually a two-month lag, so we haven't seen the March numbers yet. But uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to see March. What they do is they provide comparisons from this year to last year, and we'll probably see March numbers declining versus March of last year. Whereas in the last two months of 2020, we've seen uh, the numbers increasing. So February 2019, we had about 10,000 consumer filings. And in February 2020, that went up about 9% to 11,250. Uh, in January 2019, we we're at 9,900, and then it went up to 11,000, an, an increase of 10%. So I think in March, we're going to s- see that trend uh, go on, you know, slow down a bit. The brakes have kind of been put on right now with respect to the insolvency filings by consumers. Okay. Uh, Two million jobs lost in the month of April. That's uh, that's a number that has to affect everything that goes on financially. It does. Like, uh, the unemployment rate hit about 13% from what I've uh, read in the papers there. Yeah. But, uh, I found it interesting that the economists expected a, a lot higher of a number. So... Even though uh, the economists are saying probably it's not as bad as it could have been, uh, even though in, in insolvency numbers have dropped now, I think we are still going to see the insolvency numbers get back into the trend that they were they had right. at the beginning of the year. So we might see a slowdown. Well, we are seeing a slowdown now in March and April with respect to people filing insolvencies, but we think uh, it could continue into May and then June, July, August. Who knows? We're probably going to be right back to where we were, if not busier than uh, where we started in 2020. So we have about 45 seconds. Tell us what uh, what MNP actually does. So MNP Limited, we're licensed insolvency trustees from coast to coast. Uh, what people do is they come in, see us, we sit down with them, and we go over their financial situation and provide solutions to their, uh, their, their problems if they're having any. If it's not us, then we refer them out to people that can help them. There's, uh, we're licensed by the government, and uh, we provide solutions such as proposals and bankruptcies to people help get out of their debt problems. Great. Uh, John, thank you very much for the time. It's fascinating and it's disturbing, but we need these numbers, and you provide them to us. Thanks again. Great. Thanks, Rory. All the best. Uh, John Athanasio, the Senior Vice President, Consumer Insolvency at MNP. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.